We return now to our breaking coverage. Hang on, folks. Yep. Yes. Okay. This just in. It is confirmed that the Convo podcast is about to launch. I repeat, you heard correctly. The Convo is imminently set to launch. For more on this breaking story, we now cross live to our correspondent on the, sne- on the scene, Cornelius Hawthorne. Cornelius, is this true? And what can you tell us about it? Yes, Harrison, it is true. The Convo, the convo launch is indeed set to occur. Local sources on the ground tell us that it has been a few months in the making, but the launch is now imminent. Well, there you have it, folks. You heard correctly. If you read the signs, and certainly this was a long time coming, and it is in fact now the time. Cornelius, what exactly is this convo that is the subject of this incredibly vague breaking story? Well, Harrison, what I've gathered from local sources here on the ground is that the convo, somewhat controversially, is actually short for the conversation. Why they didn't just use the whole word is beyond me and it's sparking furious debate. Perhaps they've concluded that dropping a couple of syllables makes the name catchy and casual. Also, what the conversation is actually going to be about remains to be seen. Quite astonishing out here, really, I have to say. Back to you, Harrison. Wow, just incredible. Thanks for that, Cornelius, and stay safe. For those just tuning in, the convo is officially launching in three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the very first, the inaugural episode of The Convo, a fortnightly podcast hosted by yours truly, Troy and Hamza, sorry, Hamza and Sufyan, uh, in which we hope to share with you our sometimes mainstream and sometimes slightly outside of the mainstream uh, take on the latest headlines. And you can catch us, inshallah, for now on Facebook, Instagram, um, and in time you'll find us on other platforms. Uh, like YouTube, Twitter, Spotify, um, all those other socials. And uh, for fear of sounding like the uh, social media influencers and the YouTube personalities, be sure to like and subscribe, share all that jazz, please, inshallah. Um, Share our pages, accounts and all that. Um, And please be sure to tune in every second Monday at 7, inshallah. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, that's the convo for you. It's a podcast about the headlines. Well, let's get a taste of the headlines. Overnight, Washington decided to play schoolyard bully in the ongoing tension in the South China Sea, where apparently it's encroaching on Chinese personal space, which the UN said is not really Chinese personal space. And in all of this, Washington reminds us of, you know, self-entitled teenage guys and girls who say, um, you know, Maybe I can sort of do it in a skip format. Do you, ever, do you ever feel like you're suffocating because 
everyone doesn't submit to your authority 100% of the time. Like, all I ever wanted to do was freely roam these waters and all the other waters and all the other land and, and all the other airspace. And why doesn't everyone just let me do what I want to do 100% of the time? But boy, does this have a Cold War-esque feel to it. The threats are flying in thick and fast. If we can get the tweet now. Uh, in the in the South China Sea, Beijing state-controlled Global Times news service declared any U.S. aircraft carrier movement in the region is at the pleasure of the PLA, to which the U.S. said, look, yeah, about that, bro. Um, and yet there they are, two U.S. Navy aircraft carriers operating in the international waters of the South China Sea. What's cold about this war, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's being waged on Twitter. Yeah, it's just, um, it's interesting how now you've got wars being waged on Twitter. Like, you used to have proxy wars with other nations made as sort of the, the middle play or the middle ground. You had a space race in the actual previous Cold War, and now you've got a cyberspace race, it seems. There's that, but then there's also Israeli encroachment in the West Bank, which is something that continually occurs. Mm. There's a massive issue of the recognition of Hagia Sophia as a mosque, no, no longer, longer having... museum, that's right. Um, and that's making waves uh, across the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. There's continuing and ongoing developments with Black Lives Matter. Um, that's a few of the global stories, but a bit more on the local, Sufjan. Well, locally, you've got coronavirus 2.0. Yesterday, the cases in Victoria went up to 300. I think the exact figure was 288, and it dropped significantly. Well, it dropped somewhat today, but still um, sparking massive concern in Victoria. Um, the other states have closed their borders up to Victoria. Um, and uh, to be honest, even in New South Wales, there's a couple of fresh clusters that are popping around, springing up every, every, every now and then. Um, and then there's the fact that today, I don't know if many of our viewers know this, but today actually marks the end of that $1.5 billion uh, free daycare scheme um, in which parents were able to send their toddlers to daycare for free. It was, it was something that the government did in response to the coronavirus tension and then the fees and, and so forth. And, you know, as parents, we've, we've both got you know, two-year-olds, I've got a yep. four-year-old, and we can understand the strain that that might cause on some parents. Um, um, and then what else is there on the local scene? I guess, um, look, the Eels are on top of the ladder again, and they are unquestionably premiership favourites. Um, that was a deal. Let's move on. Yeah, I, I don't really care much for that premiership. The real premiership is the English Premier League, of which Liverpool are already champions. So there's that. Um, anyway, that's a quick uh, wrap-up of the week in news. Um, but here's a question. Why would you guys listen to us or watch us as you know a, a regular source of news current affairs and so forth like why is it us um and look it's a big ask to be honest but we want to be your fortnightly fix um we want to be your infotainment for the week uh we're monday evening so it's after you've come back from work you know on that long day uh monday itis is setting in um, and you know you, you're going to that job that you've got to do, and you know we we love our employers. Just we in love case they're our listening. Workplace, Fantastic absolutely. workplaces, alhamdulillah. Um, but yeah, after that long day, you come home. You could you know browse your feed and you know just open up some news articles, or you could tune in to us. Um, and we hope that inshallah we can um, be that source for you. Mm. So sit back, relax that Monday evening, tea, coffee, hot meal, whatever it is, um, and hopefully tune into the convo. But wait, there's more. Call within the next five minutes and you'll get double. Two bags for the price of one. Call now. We don't have a phone number yet, but call now. Okay, there was meant to be a little um, 
Tech guy, that's meant to be a little uh, sound clip there. But anyway, camera. Um, okay, so what I think he's trying to say is that if we wanted the news, guys, you'd watch the news. Here at the Convo, we don't just want to look at the news. We want to develop a, a way of thinking. Part of the disempowerment that comes for Muslim youth, it stems from the fact that we're unable to take a position or like a firm position on what's going on around the world. Stuff happens. I shouldn't say stuff happens. There's a lot more than just stuff happening. But there's civil wars around the world, you know, 11 years in Syria. How many of us can comfortably sort of say this is what's going on? Um, um, and you have a whole host of other things the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest that swept America a couple of months ago you've got um, China as a rising power what in the world happened to the Arab Spring these big questions right and how confident do we feel in offering words of insight in response to these questions yeah like following all these actions and interactions of states at the, both the regional and interna international level it's critical to try and make sense of the conflicts that go on between them and Frankly speaking, like we hear and we read about this news a lot, mm. um, and it's not really sufficient that we're just spectators. Like we're young, capable, able Muslims, Alhamdulillah, um, and we shouldn't hesitate in taking a position on these issues. But obviously, we can only do so once we actually have the know-how and we've got the information and everything else. But we absolutely should not hesitate from learning that first of all. But then positioning ourselves actually taking a stance um, on these matters. Um, so if you follow the news, develop a more political mindset, do a bit of analysis, read a little further, um, and actually then be bold enough to take a, positions, uh, p take a position, um, then we can start to be part of that conversation. I think that, uh, maybe this is me, but I feel like we kind of recognize that the Muslim voice sometimes is sorely missing from these broader conversations. It is. It is. We, we, we do have Muslim voices. We've got shayukh, we've got uh, learned brothers and sisters of knowledge um, who will partake in a conversation in pretty much like uh, most issues across the spectrum. But I feel that there is a bit of a void. It's not entirely true. There's, there's other voids, there's other areas. You know, I think mental health, for example, is a big ticket news item that, uh, not a news item, but it's a social issue that could be addressed more. No, for sure, um, for sure. More so in the community. And there's others, there's, there's big issues that we're well aware of, drugs, substance abuse, DV, you know, the, the, the big issues that need to be addressed, spoken about, but then obviously action needs to be taken on them as well. But politics is kind of one of those things as well. Like, um, where are the uh, where's the Islamic leadership on this issue? Like, how are we supposed to make sense of the world around us? And why do we resign ourselves to just like, okay, we'll take care of our personal worship and our ibadah, and and then the West can take care of the politics of the Muslim world, and we really don't have anything to say about that. And there should be no politics in the masjid and stuff. And I don't know. It's just um, yeah. I think it's. I, I also feel like sometimes there's a bit of a sense of intimidation. As well, in the sense that it's not that Muslims don't want to talk about politics. I'm sure that anyone who's gone to family gatherings and so forth, politics is always on the table, yeah. on the dinner table, which, funnily enough, is where people say politics shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, it's always being spoken about. But I feel like perhaps there's a bit of a lack of confidence in really projecting that authentic indigenous Muslim voice on politics, like sure. on issues of China and on issues of America and issues of economics and so forth. Like to have a learned, substantial Muslim voice that's got something to say and that wants to be heard. I feel like, you know, we just, 
we need to build ourselves in that space as well. And yeah, I guess and this podcast is part of that effort as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we've got, we've well, at least we think we've aptly named it the convo because we're trying to tap into that characteristic convo, like the conversation that takes place in all the discursive arenas of society, the cafes, the universities, you know, even in the living rooms of our houses where we have a conversation which is, um, which is, to be honest, the format which is the most intriguing and interesting. You can have a lecture, you can have a, you can have a whole, even debates are sort of out, outdated, I think now. And, and I think the most interesting for, format is a conversation. Like two people, hopefully well-informed, well-researched, well-spoken. We're trying to hit those, uh, we're trying to hit those marks. But, um, you know, having an informed conversation about a topic that's really important for the Muslim community and um, and trying to obviously gauge the opinion on it. And the beautiful thing about an open conversation, guys, is that, yes, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to open it up to everyone. But the idea is to open it up to you guys as well. So later on in this very episode, we will be conducting a poll um, on Facebook. We will drop the link at the relevant time. And we, we do ask all of you guys to participate in that poll um, and uh, and also in future episodes, we've got a couple of elements. We don't want to sort of overpromise and underdeliver <laughs> or put all of our cards on show for now. But we do have uh, we will have guests, inshallah, local, international guests, um, and we'll take your opinions on anyone you think we should invite um, and then discard. No, we will, we will <laughs> listen very carefully to your opinions as well. Um, and there are a number of exciting features apart from that as well. You guys will be able to use your phones for future polls, and the results will be um, shown on live on screen. We and, have and another little something in the pipelines as well. But hopefully, uh, we can also get you guys to use your phones for that which they were originally intended, which is to make phone calls. Hopefully, we can have you know some platform absolutely. later on, inshallah, to have you guys actually call in and be part of our broader conversation, inshallah. Right. That would We'd be fantastic. Love to have live phone calls, and I don't know, our tech guys are working hard behind the scene, as you can see from these awesome transitions. <laughs> and um, we're going to try and get you guys to call in live and take your questions, take your comments. Um, and yep. thereby validate our initiative. <laughs> All right. So there you've got it, ladies and gentlemen. That's what the convo is about. Um, and with that, with that, we want to take you to a short break. It's just a little clip that we'd like to show you guys. Um, and with that, afterwards, we're going to be back to our first initial topic of conversation, which is China on the world stage. Hello, I'm from the government with an update on the pandemic. As you know, in order to flatten the curve, we've had to turn off the machine. The machine has not been turned off for a long, long time. Nobody even remembers who turned it on. So please bear with us as we consult the manual after prizing it from the pants of capitalism and figure out what to do next. While we wait, we thought we should have a little chat about what just happened. Scientists had been warning us for decades to prepare for this crisis. Did we? Of course not. The machine said there was no profit in preventing future crises. So instead, most of us opted for an alternative policy. Total panic dead people and bull here at the Chinese government, this meant covering up the virus and deaths, disappearing truth-tellers, arresting activists while no one's watching, making up conspiracies, making the who are and then trying to cast ourselves as the saviors of the world. Here at the British government, where we spent the past decade bankrupting the NHS, this sentient ham caught the virus and almost died of irony as his life was saved by the migrant nurses we've been blaming for unemployment. In Europe, we care about unity, so we turned our backs on the Italians and said, Cazzi vostri. In Brazil, where our fascist 
Chop still thinks it's just the flu. We left it to street gangs to protect the favelas. In India, we stoked violence against Muslims by blaming them for the virus. In Poland and Hungary, we gave up on democracy. In North Korea, we slipped into a coma. And in Belarus, we told you to drink vodka and left you to crowdfund your own health care. Vaina inalmalna. But nowhere has our policy been more evident than in backward countries and failed states. Like the US. Here, as thousands of people died and got buried in mass graves, Il Duche left you to fight each other over medical equipment by entrusting it to his little goblin-in-law. No, this isn't a dystopian sci-fi flick. This is the result of four cancerous decades of neoliberal Sure, in some places we aren't doing too badly. Here at the Australian government, we shock the world by not being the s**test for once. And in New Zealand, we depress the world by reminding you that unfortunately this isn't your leader. But sadly, when it comes to flattening that other much, much bigger curve that scientists have also been warning us about for decades, it won't be enough for only some of us to get it right. Closing our borders won't help. We either all nail it, or we all total and panic dead people and bull Oh look, the machine is almost ready to restart. Before we go back to normal, know that during this pause, we too have noticed the reminders of what we've lost. Time with our children, life returning to our shores, cities and neighborhoods, the sight of the Himalayas, of the universal logo, and of those distant places awaiting us if we don't blow this. These signs of a better world are enticingly close. If only we could just... This has been a message from your local government franchise. Send help. Authorized by the machine. Welcome back, dear viewers, and we hope you enjoyed that satirical ad as much as we did. I was trying to keep a straight face because we're going to be back on air. Uh, but um, that ad, with some of its amazing, I think, humor and its satire, I particularly enjoyed some of the insults of Boris Johnson. I think they said sentient he, ham, sentient ham, who almost died of irony <laughs> as he was saved by immigrant nurses. And what else was the Il Duche? Fantastic. Got to use that one. Uh, it does speak to, on a serious note, that ad does speak to a lot of the the underlying thinking of this podcast as well, which amongst other things is this need to push back against the mainstream narrative. Like we're sold a particular narrative in school and then often on, on many of the, of the issues, those same narratives are then peddled in university as well, universities as well um, and especially in the media. Fine, we might get some, you know, switched on and alert lecturers, seminar leaders and tutors at universities that will get us to think Right in um, in ways that sort of pushes back on the narrative, but yeah. the media and you'll see this as we look at like like classic examples from a very recent news pieces and headlines where it's just peddling one you know nauseating narrative that we're all asked to just swallow yeah. blindly, right? So 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 we hope you enjoyed that video. Um, um, we will be playing um, maybe not similar kind of videos, but we'll, we'll, we'll try and make. Um, uh, maybe a better less selection. of us talking and maybe other people talking as yeah. well. So we'll have um, we'll have some videos inshallah to show you guys as well. Um, but speaking of narratives, our, our topic for today's podcast is actually we called it China might, um, as Hamza was talking about earlier. And I've got to give credit where it's due. That is a fantastic pun that Sufyan came up with. China might obviously runs dynamite, but also China might the might of China its strength. At the same time. China might do this, might do that, so on and so forth. So really good pun there. I really liked no it. Um, and so we've got, um, we, we actually want to structure this podcast or what remains of it by looking right. at the local and the global, right? Mm. So um, we want to look at China on the local scene and we want to sort of use 
the big news to do with China, which I think you know all of us know, is the the allegations against the Chinese of the cyber attacks. Yeah. Um, and then sort of use that as a springboard to look at China. Like we think of China as an economic powerhouse that has grown to rival the US. We just want to test that out a little bit yeah. in today's podcast. All right. So, yeah, as Sufyan uh, mentioned, we're going to break it up into local, global. So, inshallah, what we're going to try and do is initially I'm just going to look at the local side of things, right? We're going to look at um, the issues that have brought mm. the Chinese discussion to the fore. Um, well, more so now. It's always been there, mm. um, but this has brought it further out, which is the cyber attacks. We'll get into some details on, uh, on that. Um, but then following the cyber attacks, just want to have a quick look at the general nature of the relationship uh, between Australia uh, and China, because sometimes it's really strangely contradictory. Like it's really friendly in some ways, and then it's really hostile in others. And there's a lot of flip-flopping between those positions. So we're going to look a bit of, uh, at a bit of that. Um, look at a bit of the points of tension between uh, the two nations and also uh, further then take some talking points out of that where we can sort of position ourselves and sort of more just analyze things a little more. Um, but let me get into the cyber attacks. So earlier last month, it was actually towards the end of last month, um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, he announced that there were, quote, sophisticated state actors behind a series um, of cyber attacks on Australia. Now, he was actually, um, when he gave the press conference for that, he was actually on his way out to some, I don't know, country town or something or other, but hastily was pulled back and decided to have this press conference where he, without naming China, effectively blamed China. Mm. Um, so it, it caused a lot of headlines, he said. So part of his quote was um, that they're targeting a range of sectors, including all levels of government, industry, political organizations, education, health, essential service providers, and operators of other critical infrastructure. And he said that this was um, ongoing. So he said it was something that had been and, going for and, a while. And if I'm not mistaken, that's not the first time that, that ScoMo has used that sort of language of a sophisticated state-based actors attacking Australia. Yeah, in fact, um, February 2019. So just over a year ago, mm. he actually used the exact same phrase, mm. sophisticated state actors. So it's not like these cyber attacks just emerged out of nowhere and suddenly they're an issue. Mm. They've been ongoing and there's been consistent news of them. If you just sort of look beyond this, this current batch of headlines, there's a whole pot of headlines underneath it yeah. um, about the same kind of thing. But um, I just wanted to mention some of the responses. So China hit back pretty furiously um, and they said there's absolutely no solid evidence um, and they said they actually turned it back on Australia and they said, you guys steal information from other nations and then you come crying to us saying that we're doing some kind of cyber attacks. I'll get into something more interesting about that soon. Um, but yeah, they actually said, uh, but they play about Australia, they play the part of the victim peddling rumors and stoking confrontation by staging a farce of the thief crying, stop thief. They have crossed the line. So China's saying, what the hell, Australia? Pretty heavy language there as oh, well. Very, very confrontational language. Mm. Um, and then they actually said there's only, they go, there's no evidence. There's just this one think tank that has said that this is what's going on. The Australian uh, Strategic Policy Institute, um, which is controversial in itself. And we'll get uh, to some of that later. But this, the Chinese government singled out this one think tank and said, it's only you guys that are actually making this claim. The think tank hit back and said, no, hang on, that's just laughable. Interestingly, though, they didn't actually offer any evidence 
to confront the claims. They just said, "Not, nah, it's laughable." So yeah, and I don't know, I'm I assuming think what they I find sit back interesting and had a laugh. is that there's this passive-aggressive sort of relationship between the two countries, where they won't come out straight. Australia won't come out straight out, um, even though it may have the evidence if it's making those uh, if it's making those very heavy, um, albeit um, what, what what can I say veiled. Uh, yeah, allegations yeah. against China uh, it doesn't necessarily have the evidence but it's okay for think tanks uh, locally to actually go ahead and, and build yeah. that sort of narrative straight up and um, yeah so this one think tank as I said I'll get in more into that a bit later on but I just wanted to mention a bit of the relationship between Australia and China because they are like very very closely linked especially by trade right so massive Absolutely massive. Australia, uh, sorry, China is Australia's number one trading partner in terms of both imports and exports. Mm. And I've got some of the figures here. So 26% of our trade with the world is with China. 26%, that's, that's enormous. That's a yeah. whole quarter, right? And two-way trade reached record, uh, record $235 billion in the last financial year. So it's absolutely massive. And so there's a lot of sort of um, agricultural products. There's minerals, materials. Um, and then there's also the service market. So you've got tourism, education, a lot of um, foreign students coming in from China. Tourism from China is huge as well. So it's absolutely massive. And in 2015, they actually had a, um, a free trade agreement, which is um, called CHAFTA, the Chinese-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Um, but yeah, the, so there is a lot of to and fro between them in terms of trade. Yeah, what about... That's, that's the governments between the two countries, mm. I think... We sort of we sort of need to scratch beneath the surface and figure out. Okay, well, they've got some very interesting rhetoric that's being used, um, uh, but but they also recognise that they need each other for trade yeah, yeah. and economic partnership. Um, but then, what about the public? Like, yeah. well, how does how does how does the local public here feel about China as a as a state that might be encroaching on? Mm. Well, uh, look. Um, apparently, according to there was a, a poll conducted by I think it was the Lowy Institute. Yes, the Lowy Institute. Um, they conducted a poll not too long ago where they said only in the last two years, excuse me, um, only in the last two years, public opinion of China has absolutely fallen off a cliff. It's nosedived, completely right. nosedived. Um, and they said that now nine out of ten Australians think that Australia should be looking elsewhere in terms of its trade, imports, exports, and so forth. And they said that like like they before that, they used to view China as... Uh, an opportune market, something to look into, something more favourable. But yeah, it's definitely taken a nose off and I don't think yeah. it's coincidental. No, it's not. I, I, like, I think a lot of that government rhetoric, the media oh, rhetoric. Absolutely. But not just that, not just yeah. like even it coincides with Trump and other sort of issues that you're going to touch on more as well. Like mm. within this two-year period, there has been an increase in aggravated focus on China, um, not just locally but internationally. So that public opinion falling off a cliff, mm. no accident. True. You know, it's not much to go off, and we wouldn't, like, I mean, if you were doing a dissertation of some sort or an academic piece, you wouldn't really cite these uh, figures. But, but if you have a look, if you jump online and you look at the comment section, Instagram, Facebook, I mean, social media, it's, you can't ignore it as well, right? Yeah. Um, that sentiment there, it seems so, like, universally, unequivocally mm. anti-China. Oh, massively, like, massively. Massive, the way, you know, you know it's not, we're not pretending it's just China. I mean, anti-Muslim. Um, mm. And I'm sure at some point it was, you know, anti whoever the next generally xenophobic, anti foreign yeah. kind of sentiment. Yeah. So, so 
that that makes sense. Um, and uh, it's, it, but it is worrying at the same time. Yeah, for sure, for got, sure. And um, it, it dovetails dovetails entirely with the whole sort of more populist nationalist rhetoric that's coming from the Trumps and the Boris Johnsons and the Pauline Hansons, if she's even relevant yeah, these days in of the, the world. The US, the far right, and the yeah, neocons. all that, all that. Um, um, and this whole stick to ourselves, strengthen ourselves, and you know, forget the foreigners, or not just forget them. In fact, push away the foreigners. So yeah, it, it all kind of plays in. Anyway, look, um, I wanted to also mention some of the areas of, I've called areas of tension yeah. um, between the nations. Um, and there's a few of them. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail regarding all of them, but I'll maybe just touch on some brief uh, info about them. So there's 5G, which apparently causes corona or something or 5G other. 5G causes corona. Yeah. That's it. Uh, <laughs> there's, According um, to Il Duce. Yes, there's the Labour Party um, and political interference through them. Um, there's international students' tourism. There's the South China Sea. There's exports. Um, the coronavirus inquiry. So corona all comes into this as well. And it's kind of like there was already tensions and issues and then corona just came and sort of mm. made that a lot more prominent. Exacerbated um, it, yeah. Yeah, massively. And then you've got local issues as well to do with Hong Kong. So the current issue going on in Hong Kong has had local ramifications. Um, but yeah, let me quickly just get into a bit of the... 5G stuff. So 5G, right? We know what 5G is. I hope generally it's new communication technology, faster downloads, right? Everyone wants it. It's fantastic. Apparently it's going to blow the NBN out of the water, which um, the government has been uh, long sort of sitting idle on. Um, but yeah, so basically what China did was China had this national security law come in saying that its citizens and indeed its corporations are obliged, legally obliged to assist their intelligence services. Mm. So their spy chiefs and their spy servers and information, all that kind of stuff. And so then the rest of the world is like, well, hang on, Huawei, which is one of the key players in the 5G sort of um, infrastructure building and so forth. Can't get out of that trap. Yeah, they go, well, they're a Chinese corporation. Mm. So does that mean that they are now legally obliged to collect data on us? And Australia actually cited that to say that, yeah, look, for that reason, bye-bye, sorry, thanks, but no thanks. Huawei, you're out. Um, and, and I think, sorry to cut you, but um, China, China's got this thing where, you know, it's locally quite, sometimes I feel like it's communist tendencies, but then I think it's just authoritarian tendencies. Mm. The way, you know, the way they conduct this state military parades, that sort of stuff doesn't happen. Like, at least it's not as common in other countries. The way that they can, I think even, it's a personal opinion here, so, but I, I even think that the way that they dealt with the coronavirus, which mm. itself is really good in terms of the, the the speed with which they contained it, but I think it's, it's oh, that's in, controversial. But we'll talk about that. It's in part down to the like authoritarianism that they can. Yeah. They've got a history of enacting policies which will then be followed it, through yeah. right to the T. Like how crazy is that? Like they've actually said, "All right, citizens, local person on the street, you are now legally obliged to help our intelligence gathering." Like, what the, what the heck? <laughs> but but the point I was making was that you've got that sort of strategy locally where it's quite authoritarian, yeah. right? Um, and then, but it realizes that it's got to be part of the real world. Like it's got to engage with the real mm. world and it's got to be diplomatic about it. So I think that's where some of that tension comes up where, all right, you 5G, um, Huawei, you got to help us with our security research, with our intelligence yeah, gathering, whatever. But then you need to engage diplomatically with countries around the world as well. So it's causing a fair amount of tension there. Yeah. Um, and I think recently the UK, I think they were using Huawei, um, and I think they maybe still are. Um, but there's recently been like pushes internationally, I think, from the United States to pull the plug on that as well. Mm. Anyway, back to the local scene. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Labour Party. Um, 
Don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty of sort of party politics and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but we had Kevin Rudd, you know, Mandarin speaking, sort of really favourable to that China attitude, right? Um, and the Labour Party has always generally been seen as softer on China. And in fact, by some on the other side of politics, it's like they see them always like a gateway to Chinese influence and interference. Almost like colluding with them. Yeah, yeah. Way. So, for example, in 2015... Um, there was an independent commission against corruption case where there was actually uh, information came out that there was like a hundred grand, a hundred thousand dollars in an Aldi shopping bag given to the Labour Party headquarters. As like Chinese donors are giving a hundred K to the Labour Party. And I was like, what the heck? Right? There's and that. Under the books as well. Yeah, obviously. It's all under the books. Like, this, you can't, politically, there's laws against that. But hey, um, in 2016, um, ASIO's spy chief, the top, uh, the director of ASIO, I think director is position, Duncan Lewis, he said that the Labour Party, about the Labour, some of their donors had strong links to the Chinese government. In 2017, Sam Dastiari, uh, he was a Labour politician at the time, mm. he had to leave. He had to leave the Labour Party, he had to resign um, because he was accused of having very strong links uh, to China. And in fact, um, the thing that brought him down was that just listen to this, it's crazy. He was accused of telling a donor, a Chinese donor, that their phone is tapped. Mm. And the news broke saying, Sam Dastiari tells Chinese donor that his phone is tapped and therefore betrays Australian intelligence gathering or whatever. Not the fact that Australia was tapping... He's actually spying on China. Yeah, exactly. Right? That wasn't that the, the headline. the phone was tapped. It's that this bloke told him that your phone's tapped. Mm. Like, Hello? Phone being tapped, is that not a problem? And that was 2017. And now this year, um, what we had recently, in fact, this was soon after the cyber attacks. In response to that, um, they had massive raids uh, on Shaket Mosulmain, his name is, um, another Labour politician who's had or been accused of having strong links to China. He's had multiple trips overseas to China. That His home his, was raided recently. Yeah, his home, his home, his offices are all raided. Um, and he had actually had a bloke who, uh, I forget his name, um, who has close links to the Chinese Communist Party was made one of his staff as well. Mm. So the Labour Party has historically, it's seen, well, at least recently, um, been seen as that kind of the the entryway for Chinese influence, softening up to China. Yeah, mm. um, I'm going to look. I'm going to just go a little quicker through the rest of this stuff because I don't want to get bogged down in details. But international students and tourism are a massive, massive source um, of income for the Australian government. Uh, billions, like twelve billion in education-related expenses just from, the from China. China. J- just from China, twelve billion. If you look at the ABS it's statistics crazy. with Saudi, would be able to help you out one. <laughs> but if you look at the ABS statistics with this one, um, you'll see just how much of Australia's revenue comes from international students. But then we're honing in specifically. Um, I think you're saying twelve billion dollars yeah. of Australia's education revenue comes from China alone. Yeah, that's, that's massive, insane numbers, insane numbers. But that's what it is. And then when you start having Australia say things that China finds unfavorable, mm. then China, they shoot back. And they have, they've actually, in um, over the past couple of months, they've said, okay, what if students just don't want to come to Australia anymore? Mm-hmm. Like, what if we don't want to have visitors to Australia anymore? What if this starts to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And then they start to issue these kinds of threats. And when that happens, there's significant like, and I, I remember, changes in tone. And I remember, what is it now? We're in July... 
um, so a couple of months ago, I think it was in May, with a Chinese ambassador, I think the quote that you were referring to, where he's saying um, he's sort of trying to warn Australia that look, if you go down that line, yeah. we might cut back, we might send our international, we might send our students to some other, yeah, yeah, for sure, you know, for international sure. territory. And even, but, even, but yeah, what yeah. I found funny about that one was I think he went a little too far. I think he got a little too excited because at the end of that one, he goes, maybe they don't like Australian wine. Maybe yeah, they'll stop eating that. Australian beef. And it was like, but, oh, but that's interesting. That I, I don't think that's too far because as we'll talk about, it did have an impact on beef and other exports, right? We'll get to that. Let's get to that. Um, but um, yeah, like they're actually saying, what if they, they put a report out? What in is it about the, what is that connection there with Australian beef to China? Australia, oh, well, Chinese eat Australian beef, therefore there's a connection. Yeah, but wh- what kind of <laughs> stats are we talking about? Oh, crazy stats. Like, um, by volume, um, the highest importer of Australian beef, beef. Are you big on beef yourself? Oh, don't. Are you more of a it. chicken guy? Do we, do we have beef right now? Is that what's going on? No? <laughs> that's good. Unscripted, <laughs> that's pretty good. No, no, look, um, by volume, uh, China can, by, uh, Australia exports the greatest proportion of its beef to China. So yeah. it's big, right? 100%. And look, it seems funny to come down to the nitty-gritty of beef and wine and whatever, but the reality is that's billions of dollars. Yeah. Like, it's actually billions of dollars. And even with tourism, the guy goes, or the the guy, uh, <laughs> it was the Chinese ambassador, I Latent think it was. racism there. Um, that, that on slide? He goes that uh, there's been a spike. No, sorry, this wasn't him. This was the Global Times, which is the Chinese state-run media agency. Mm-hmm. Um, they go that uh, Australia's really, really racist and there's been a spike in racist attacks. Don't go to Australia. Like they basically said that, <laughs> right? In response to this, they were like, Australians are racist, don't go. Right? And then Australia came back and said, no, our racist attacks are normal. There's no spike. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, yeah, there we go. Thank you for uh, that. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Fantastic. Um, all right, but yeah, look, barley and beef. So, for example, um, China slapped an 80% tariff on Australian barley, 80%, which effectively means that there will be no barley coming from Australia into China. And Australia was the number one source of barley for China, mm. which is huge. Like, China doesn't have the infrastructure. China doesn't have the agricultural capability to produce the barley that its population needs. Uh, I think it does like 1.9 million tons or something or other when they've yeah. imported like 6 million tons or something from I Australia. Think, I think China's tariff sort of tariff policy went into overdrive because they were slapping tariffs on America and then they had this you conversation. Get you get a tariff. You get a tariff. You get a tariff. Everyone gets a tariff. <laughs> <laughs> they have this beef with America, with Australia. Uh, well played. And they say, well, you get a tariff too. They actually don't have beef with Australia anymore. 80% <laughs> is massive. I'm saying that that yeah, tariff huge. is huge. But what's and funny is that when they said that about Bali to Australia, you know what they did? Mm. They went to America and they said, hey guys, we're going to start imp- imp- uh, importing more of your barley now <laughs> because Trump had some trade communications with them. So they're like, sack you Australia, too bad. America, we'll take your barley. Mm. So they're playing like all these sides at the same time. Yeah. It's very interesting. All right, quickly, Corona inquiry. Mm. So Corona happened, right? United States starts, uh, Trump and the United States start saying, we need to look at where this stuff came from. Sure. And then Australia said, hey, we can do that for you. And they go, we want an independent inquiry. And suddenly, overnight almost, Australia became this like pointy end of the spear for an international inquiry into the origins of corona. China wasn't happy. They said that this is just political manoeuvring. And that's where the guy actually said um, it was China's ambassador to Australia, Jing Cheng, I think. 
Um, he goes, maybe the ordinary people will say, should we drink Australian wine or eat Australian beef? Um, but what's funny is that Australia played this hardball tactic, right? We want this independent inquiry. And then there was some back scene politicking happening where you had the um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade speaking to the ambassador. At the end of it, they said, uh, what actually ended up happening with the inquiry was that it was so timid and it was so not confrontational, like Australia pointed out to be. Like they were saying initially, Morrison was saying stuff like, we want weapons inspector grade stuff happening there. Yeah. It ended up being so mild that China actually signed on to it. They said, you know what, this is so harmless that, yeah, all right, we're cool with this as well. So it ended up being almost a lot of hot air. Mm. Um, but look, I'm going to leave it at that. There was something I wanted to mention about Hong Kong. Um, should, I, should I mention something yeah, about whatever. it? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Hong Kong when it comes up. But, but what, what, what do you think some of the talking points that are, like, that's a lot of news to take yeah, in, that's right? A ton. News, um, tariffs, exports issues in yeah. beef with China and so forth. Lack what, of beef. What, is, uh, what, what are some of the talking points that come out of that? One, that Australia is stuck, it seems. Mm. It seems that it's stuck between its geopolitical reality, which is in this region, right? Southeast Asian region. Yep. Um, that's its geographical reality. Yet its ideological allegiance yep. is to America and obviously it's got close historical ties to the UK and to Britain. Mm. So it's stuck between these two worlds. Does it accept its geopolitical reality and say, all right, look, we're going to have to be friendly with China? Or does it say, sorry, we're ideologically aligned with the United States. Yeah. We're going to have to stick with them. Yeah. And it, that's, I feel like that's a lot of the flip-flopping. And that's why Morrison, like, it seems like he tries to appease everyone. He's got people in his own cabinet in the Liberal Party that they call the China hawks, which are the ones that actually push this anti-China line. Like George Christensen, who's an MP, mm. he's got a website, chinainquiry.org or something or other, right? Yeah. Massively anti-China, get rid of China, blah, blah, blah. This guy's an MP. And so it seems like Morrison and the Liberals actually allow for some element of that exaggerated rhetoric. But then when it comes to themselves, they kind of take a yeah. more, oh, we're the sensible guys, we're the more informed politicians, and we're going to be casual about it. they that tactic elsewhere as well. I think, you know, with the... May their souls rest in peace. But with the Christchurch attack and I mean, and, I mean. and and the attack on the um, the worshippers in the masjid, um, I think the government played the same sort of tactic mm. there as well. Where it comes out and it says, "Look, at the end of the day, the Muslims Muslims are an important part of our economy and they're an important part of our society." Yeah. And they act as if they haven't played a central role in stoking up hatred yeah, and sure. Islamophobia. And they make and they distance themselves yeah. from the problem. They say these right wingers here, right, and these Islamophobes shouldn't talk about Muslims in the way they do, but their policies and their rhetoric and the stuff that they say. They sort yeah. of got that policy. But what I was saying earlier was I think Look with the because because it's so important in politics to sort of go beyond the headlines. No, for sure. Right, like there's something there that a politician or a prime minister or you know even the media is saying, um, but you got to go beyond beyond the headlines and try and figure out what's actually going on here because it's so interesting. Politicians are stoking up this hatred, um, and so is the media. But then when when you know something hits the fan. Got to keep this PG. Um, Scomo says that you know trade is the ultimate arbiter. He says oh, yeah, the quote sure. is that incredibly important and it's beneficial for both countries. Yeah. And, and you've got that tourism industry council yeah. guy in Queensland. What's his name? Buckingham. Simon. No, no that's um, um, Daniel Schwein. Dwine or whatever his name is. 
you know, he says that those any periods of tension that we've had with China were never helpful for anyone. Yeah, yeah. So but, uh, I think that speaks to an important point, which is that the reality is they actually need each other. Like China and Australia, they need each other. Yeah. Like Australia needs that market. Australia needs the imports. Australia needs the exports. But China also needs the agricultural output of Australia. Like they they ha- haven't got that, and they need it. Uh, uh, China needs the coal. China China needs the iron ore. Australia is phenomenally rich with these minerals yep. and these resources, and China genuinely yep. needs them. And I think what's going on to some extent, right, is is sort of a China's thinking the friend of my the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm. right? So you know there's something going on here where. Um, or rather it's Australia that be thinking that the enemy of my enemy is my friend meaning China is my friend because it's an enemy to my ally the United States yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and then Australia has to try and manoeuvre this relationship yeah. with this absolutely critical trade partner in the Asia Pacific yeah. but at the same time it has to have a really you know um, amicable relationship yeah. not even amicable I think it has to toe the line when it oh, comes absolutely, to toe you know, the, line, yeah. the, the policies that America sort of lays out for her yeah. right um, um and just lastly, I just want to mention, you know, you, you said going beyond the headlines, yeah? Mm. You know what's really interesting? It, we, we mentioned the raid on Shaket Mosulman's house and offices and so forth. Now, if this is such a critical national security thing and, you know, it, it's got to be looked at seriously and everything else, then why were 60 Minutes ready and waiting with cameras to record the entire thing? The entire raid. Like the whole raid was ready to be filmed. So mm. obviously media were informed that this is going to happen. And if that's going to be plastered across everywhere on the headli- headlines and news reports and all of that, then you've got to ask the question, okay, why? Yep. What's the reason behind having such massive coverage of this issue? And why are they creating that moral panic? And, and cre- creating that dive in public opinion. Yep. Maybe that's where we can look at more things. But you know what it reminds me of? What? You know the, the massive raids that occurred, um, the anti-terror raids? Those pre-born happened, raids. In where they had like Canterbury. the aerial footage and the really dramatic, like yep. almost born style camera work and everything. It reminds me of that kind of thing where there's always these agendas at play. Yeah, and what happened with those raids is that I think it was 13 or 23, either way, massive number, completely unjustified. But however many people who were who were um, charged and then all Got 13 off, yeah. of those charges were dropped. Yeah, So it makes you think, well, what the hell is going on here? But the headline had the impact that it wanted, which was to create the fear, to create the... And it creates the, that. And then, and, then, yeah. and then the Lowy Institute comes out and says, well, this is what the yeah, people exactly. are feeling, that 9 out of 10 people have a very negative impression indeed, of China. Indeed. Um, Maybe we should go to that Facebook poll. What do you reckon? Let's do that, actually. Um, so we are, we're asking a question on Facebook, which is... Um, can in your opinion, do you think that China can rival or does it currently rival the US? So if you want to weigh in with your opinions, we'll be so interested to see that and then hopefully our tech guys can project that as well um, so that you can see what the results are. We'll tell you, but if you can see it, that would be amazing as well. Hint, hint. Um, so so maybe with that, we'll move on to some of the other stuff as well. We want to look yep. at, we looked at China locally and its relationship with Australia, its trade relationship, its beef with Australia. We've really got to stop milking <laughs> that one. Um, but um, we want to look at it globally as well. You know, there's this big question of China being this um, economic powerhouse. And I, I, I wanted to have a look at um, some of these, some of that rhetoric around it as well. You know, growing up, we all, at some point, I think we all had that, why is everything got a Made in China sticker on it, <laughs> right? And, and believe it or not, China actually has an economic policy called Made in China 2025. 
oh, wow. in which it's trying to balance its growth export, sorry, its export-oriented growth strategy with a new strategy which is based on investment, uh, which is oh, I'll address in a little bit. But, but you know, growing up, we all, not just growing up, you know, I think to some extent, all of us, we recognize that China is an economic powerhouse, mm. right? And and just to get some stats on that, mind-blowing statistics. Like, honestly, the most apocalyptic and, and epic economic development in human history, that is China for you. It, it went from having 79, sorry, 90% of its population living in poverty in the year 1979. To, to lifting 850 million of those people out of poverty in a short four decades. Whoa, right? that's That huge. is massive. And that's you have to recognize crazy. that. And I think, like I said earlier, we were talking about, you know, there's voices and sometimes they're far right and far left. And the far right and the neocons in America and policymakers, I think that's what scares them to some extent. They look mm. at China and they say, we moved from being this poverty-stricken nation to yeah. actually being a, a force to be reckoned with on the economic, um, at least on the regional front, if not on the global front. Um, but we also hear of China sort of keeping a low profile. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's that sort of Chinese style of not wearing their expressions on their sleeve or if it's just playing their cards close to their chest. But they have always kept a very low profile. And, you know, in the um, early 90s, or I think it was 89, um, I'm not going to attempt to... Um, I've just been handed something here. Da, 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 da. There are some comments we will look at, inshallah. Um, but, um, you know... Uh, I might as well read that out. So we've got um, a comment from a brother, Abdullah Al-Hashimi, who's saying that the USA today is not the same USA as 20 years ago, so this needs to be discussed as well. Um, true to some extent. Yeah. Um, true to some extent, but I think, brother, you will find also that Bill Clinton was actually one of the presidents that took a very, very hard-line approach on China. Um, if we're thinking 20 years ago, we're thinking around that era or just yeah. after. Right, um, but but very interesting point, and we will um, read out some of your comments and try to address them. But just to just to finish off on the point I was trying to make, which is that the president who ended his presidency, I think his name is Xiaoping, um, Deng Xiaoping, in the um, uh, in 1989. Right, he has a famous doctrine, which is I wish I had a little sign to put together for this one. Uh, <laughs> I want you to remember this one. It's called "Hide your strength, bide your time." That was his big slogan. Wow, that's really nice and poetic. Uh, hide your strength, bide your time. It's kind of creepy like to say that on the international strings like okay these guys are going to do something undercovers that we're going to find <laughs> out about in 40 years from now um, and all of that at least for me I'll be honest it's like a personal thing for me it's created this impression that China whilst not necessarily a global superpower it's still a force to be reckoned with yeah, yeah. right and, and maybe even tinkering on that edge you know like hiding biting until eventually it comes knocking on America's door but then you look at the actual stats on the ground and you're left scratching your head you know, if you look at the timeline of economic growth, I said uh, 1979, four decades, it lifted 850 million people out of, but obviously it had to have a specific economic strategy to be able to pull that off. What is that strategy? 79 up until 2008, it's got this very heavily growth uh, oriented, uh, sorry, export oriented growth strategy, right? Where it's, uh, it's the economic po production powerhouse of the world. Um, Mm. Um, but what happens in 2008 is obviously so is that that 1979 thing is that export push is that what got 
that huge number of people out of poverty. That's what really revolutionized Absolutely. things. Absolutely. They changed their economic strategy. And the reason they did it was after a, f- a few decades of conservative communist policy. Mm. They realized and they came up with this. Um, they, ca- they renamed it and they called it's called the Openness and Reform Era. Where okay. they said, and that marks the transition of China being a communist state to a capitalist state. They ah, changed their policies. Okay, they changed okay. their tact. Right. And they grew. Ah, um, see, and, and, and not... They, not just did they grow, the, the growth is phenomenal. Yeah. In 2009, China overtook Germany as the world's biggest exporter. Wow. In 2010, it overtook Japan as the second biggest economy in the world, only second to the United <laughs> States. Damn. Massive growth. But what happens in 2008 is obviously the... GFC. The GFC, the global financial crisis. And obviously what that um, entails is a massive decline in global trade, which which spells disaster for China's uh, export-oriented strategy. So China needs to go back to the drawing board. It needs to think. It initially thinks of stimulus packages, but that's not working for it. There's mm. a construction boom. There's this establishment of like ghost towns in China because they're not responding uh, yeah. to a needs basis. And then they come up with the magic I word, which is investment. Yeah. And that's where but they just, come just up with... On that, sorry, sure. before I, um, sorry to cut you off. Mm. But it's interesting how 1979, they go, they have this export model, yeah? And then GFC hits... But who's buying, right? GFC hits and now people can't buy. People Absolutely. don't have the money to buy. So that whole export-oriented approach kind of is entirely counterproductive, right. falls by the wayside. And I think, and, and, and um, that's a really good point you make, you know, because as a superpower or as a, a nation that is, is, we haven't made this conclusion yet if China is actually even trying to be a superpower in that sense. But, um, but as a nation that's seeking to sort of put itself on the world stage, you can come up with all the policies that you like, but the fact is that you are as much subject to the policies that you create and the policies that others create mm. as much as you are the architect of those policies. You'll create a certain set of policies, but you're subject to someone else's policies. You're subject to changing trends in, in the economy, mm. yeah, yeah. right? And so, you know, I think it's, it's something that's a bit of a sort of humbling point to remember in mind as well. You know, we sometimes think of, uh, China economic powerhouse. So we think of America, the greatest superpower that no one can challenge, right? Yeah. But they're subject to the same changing realities. And they've got to contend right? with everything. And they've that, got to contend yeah. with everything, which is why they're always on the ball and always thinking, about, what do we do now? What sort of piece of this uh, chessboard do we move now? And what will that sort of trigger and so yep, forth? Yep. So it's a massive, you know, and, and obviously books have been named after that as well. We've got um, the grand chessboard, which is political and international relations, sort of playing along those uh, lines and that analogy. But what I wanted to sort of mention here was was something, the three sort of magic letters of BRI. Mm. So this is something um, anyone who's sort of looked into the economy or Chinese economics, um, Chinese economics, that's not a thing. Um, you know, the economy from now. a Chinese point of view, um, it's, it's something called the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's very strangely named because the road part of it is is our shipping routes and, and the belt part of it are actually on-road corridors. But it's essentially this partnership that China has with like 176 countries. Oh, um, that's huge. Massive. And 29 international organizations. And they've got these sort of intricate corridors of sort of overland um, you know, corridors and then shipping routes where they connect cities and port cities. Um, and it's it's massive right investment program of just railways, roads, bridges, airports, seaports, you name it, right? Like a $3.2 billion rail network that connects Mombasa to, to Nairobi, right? <laughs> Massive, right? And, 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 and then there's that point about the – there's a point like it's, – it's like the essentially a 21st century Silk Road, 
right? So what exactly do you mean by that reference? Like just like everything's got to go through them or what's the point of it? It's trying to establish trade networks with mm. these countries and it's trying to essentially externalize its manufacturing base. Previously, everything's manufactured in-house. Yep. It's externalizing that and it's saying, okay. we'll give you our Chinese contractors and obviously through those contractors, they're winning like $300 billion worth of investment, Ooh. which is massive. Um, but it's not all hunky-dory. There is some doom and gloom there as well, unfortunately for China. Um, and, and that is that... Um, after the initial interest, um, there is some backlash. There mm. is some reconsideration. Malaysia's uh, Mahathir Mohamed sort of come out and said, we put some serious question marks on this initiative because we're worried about debt trap politics mm. and we're worried about smaller countries being forced into sort of IMF loan type scenarios where you're going to have to fall, pay back a ton of, uh, of interest. And so yeah, forth. and if you, if you can't pay it back, then you're effectively enslaved. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there's been these sort of allegations of, and this is where I think it gets really interesting. There's these allegations of... Um, mostly from Western academic circles and in the media, they talk about the you know, um, economic imperialism mm. of China. It talks about uh, global dominance and, and China's using this debt trap, map, debt trap model. It's trying to export its political model of communism yeah, yeah. And, and all that sort of rhetoric. That, And I think what we have to just stop and ask ourselves here is who is making these allegations? Who's leveling these allegations of economic imperialism against China? Who's got beef with China? Who's got beef with China? And it's it's funny. Like, you want to say something about China, pick on something that is uniquely China. If America wants to say something against China, pick on something that's not, you know, American economics 101, like in economic imperialism. You know, if we were, we're probably going to, we said at the start, we're going to try and do like a, a skit of some sort, maybe in future episodes. But if I was to on the fly do something, I won't do that. Let's come back to this. Uh, but honestly, it'd be like, you know, if you boil it down to like schoolyard politics, you're like, enter, I don't know, the schoolyard and then say, you know, why, um, why is everyone not ringing the alarm bells about the economic imperialist in town? And everyone's looking at America and America's like, not me, China, right? But it's just this point. It's just this projection, this um, psychological projection yeah, on the yeah. part of America, right? This, um, the pot calling the kettle black, right? Like uh, of all people to charge China with economic imperialism, yeah. it's America, right? Which has a history of economic imperialism, right? Yeah. Um, um, and so it's, but it's not, it's not just America. Australia does the same thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, right? for sure. Like I was, I remember uh, I watched a um, 60 minute report not too long ago and it was about Vanuatu and Fiji and how China's trying to have increased influence in that region. Um, and it's talking about how uh, China's built these bases and these uh, shipping docks and it's built these, like honestly it had, I can't remember if you, I think it was in Vanuatu. Um, it built a massive convention center, but the local council there couldn't even afford to pay its electricity bill. Yeah. So it's just sitting there. It's not being used, but it's just there because China built it. Yeah, and it's the same thing with with the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. You've got a $200 million airport. So, so China's helped through Chinese contractors build a second airport in Sri Lanka, and it's been dubbed the world's emptiest airport. Oh, wow. So it's not just the ghost towns in China, but it's actually this they're not responding to a needs basis. Yeah. It's just blind investment because they're trying to push forward in a new um, economic growth strategy, yeah. which is investment through the, through the BRI. You know, you know what's funny? That report, they asked, I think it was a foreign minister, of Fiji, Vanuatu, whatever, I can't remember the exact detail. Mm. But they asked, like, why do you take these projects from China? Like, what's the point? They go, oh, look, if we do it, then we might vote with them on critical issues in the UN and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
And the reporter's like dumbfounded. He's like, that's bribery. <laughs> you can't actually do that. And he goes, oh, well, that's just what it is. And then they even they came out blatantly saying, if Australia did it, like, then you'd expect the same thing for yourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, Australia's not annoyed that China's doing this as a matter of principle. Mm-hmm. It's that they didn't get there first. Mm-hmm. It's that China's gone, stepped over Australia, gone into the region, and it's embedded its political influence at the expense of of the political influence of, say, Australia Absolutely. or the US or Australia as a proxy of the US, and, and that's where it gets sort of to this deeply political, um, you know, manoeuvring sort of thing where you've got, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiatives, China's new strategy to grow economically. Um, it, it hasn't necessarily worked because it's post-GFC, it's post-2002. And what's happening is um, uh, China's economy has actually dropped. It's continued to – and it's still – the growth is is the growth rate is falling. It's in decline. Mm. It's gone from I think in twenty, if I'm not mistaken, twenty eleven or twenty ten thereabouts, from ten point six percent to in in a decade it's come down to less than six percent. Oh, okay. So it's just continued to fall. So the so the Belt and Road Initiative is not this silver bullet that's going to solve all of its problems, but it remains to be seen how successful it will yeah, be. Yeah, um, I remember about the Belt and Road Initiative. There was actually a project in Victoria that was part of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and uh, the American Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, he was in Australia and he was asked about it. And he actually said that if Australia or if some states or you know, if Australia keeps doing this, then we may just have to disconnect. And when he said that, it just created these furious headlines like, oh my God, the US threatens to disconnect from Australia if Australia takes on Chinese projects and so forth. But it's just interesting to note that the Belt and Road Initiative isn't just sort of you know vulnerable countries, but even Australia is being uh, part of that. And I'm sure there was profits in the Victorian government, you know, taking got, that on. You've got Sudan, which is obviously reports to America. You've got Pakistan, which at the very least you'll say it continues to execute the US agenda. And these are the countries that are recipients of the BRI. So it's it's not it's not an open field for China to just come in and throw money at these countries because if they're reporting to the US or if they're executing their agenda as Sudan and Pakistan for so, as, as some examples it's not just the USA but it's it's Britain as well it's France right mm. so you've got these recipient countries of the BRI who are very either very closely partnered up or just agents of these countries mm. right of yeah. the USA of Britain of France and and sure the BRI has this power to give China has this potential to give China power and and for this to for, for them to what you were saying like using it as in the case of Venezuela to shape policy but Vanuatu. I think, oh, sorry Vanuatu um, I think when it comes to what we've seen so far China's tried to get energy it's tried to get commodities it's tried to get minerals and and and, and build its investment on that yeah, base yeah. but it hasn't to date um, as like a rule of thumb, it hasn't shown those political goals mm. of like using the BRI to undermine the United States or yeah, using yeah, the BRI yeah, to undermine, you know, international institutions. Mm. And I think until that happens, the BRI really has to continue to be viewed as like a commercial and an economic project. Um, and, and, you know, like I said at the start as well, that, yeah, sure, there's right the right-wingers and the neocons in the USA that will look at China and say, hello, wake up and smell the coffee. 40 years, it's turned into this economic mm. giant. And yeah, yeah policy makers are going to be worried about that stuff but then obviously when it comes to analysis we've got to look at the reality of it you know and um and and when it comes to that reality i think the fact is that whether one they haven't got that orientation they're not thinking down that way but i think even if they were there's a whole host of problems that's plaguing china yeah like they've got their own massive internal domestic issues they've got 
Um, the economic modelling is coming under serious scrutiny. They've got the issue of the Uyghur Muslims as well and the international pr- uh, coverage that that's getting and the way that they're the concentration them. Camps yeah, the may Allah protect them. I mean. um, not the Chinese, of course, the Uyghur Muslims. They've got the trade wars with the US. They've got the issues with Australia. They've got the massive Hong Kong issue, the yep. huge issue that's going on nowadays. They've got military, air force and navy problems. You know, they've got all these issues. So it's not just like, yeah, all right, we're cool to take on, you know, the global stage and, yeah, and we'd have no issues of our and own. And it's bogged down in these issues. It is bogged down in a trade war with the US. It is yeah. bogged down in its Hong Kong issues with protesters. I mean, China did not think. You know, Xi's policy, the, the emperor, whatever they call him down there, <laughs> right? His policy... He's got issues of his own, obviously. He's, I think he was brought in to sort of manage these issues. But on all the fronts, I think apart from the fact that they've landed a probe on the dark side of the moon, but every <laughs> other issue, they they are really fledgling with the economy. Um, yeah. The military, the air force, the navy. Um, it's really, I mean, if, I guess it depends on what angle you're taking. Are they seeking to rival the US? If so, they don't stand a chance. But if they're trying to sort of just be, to prop up themselves to be a regional power, then I, then I think they, they might be a formidable force mm. in that regard. Yeah. But and that's where know, like conflicts in the South China Sea and all that come into play. Exactly. And then, of course, that, that, that whole history of the Hong Kong problem, yeah. you know, where these protests are happening at the moment. And, and it's just a long history where it's, it's, a, it's a Chinese port that was given off to the British and the British controlled it for 97 years. Or, or, or about a century and then and then it went off into this 99 year lease yeah, yeah. and when that came to an end there's that Sino-British declaration which meant that Britain will continue to control Hong Kong right like a proxy state it will yeah, continue yeah, to it, control yeah. it and the fact is that now in the US what are Chi- what are um, Hong Kongers they see themselves as Hong Kongers first and they see yeah. themselves as Chinese citizens second but what are these people? They're opposed to communism. They're ve- they've got a very Western lifestyle. And that's because of the influence. And, and you know, s- the British have typically, as they always do, they've played the long game. Yeah, right? Yeah. They've really played the long game. They've asserted themselves and they've sort of um, imbued that culture, the Western culture, the love of liberalism, of freedom and the hatred of communism to the point that even when they left, yeah, Hong Kong is like, yeah. no, we're not happy with communism. <laughs> we want the Western way of life. So, so Britain, yeah. kudos to them for playing that long ball like that. I mean, in a strictly political sense, right? Um, but yeah, those problems continue to sort of plague China. Mm. And it has local implications as well in the sense that the Hong Kong issue now is a political issue in Australia. Yeah, and, and that's not to say that the US doesn't have its problem. I mean, mm. protesters. Oh, massive problems. Massive protesters sweeping all across, right? Um, America and they can't they can't get their own house in order but but I think the two are incomparable I think with with Hong Kong I mean in America you don't have a separate territory that is sort of yeah. you know seeking independence and it's um, you know or it's in an independent state that's refusing right to become part of mainland China you don't have those sort of problems in America um, you know in America like I said it's military right it's naval sort of nuclear propulsion technology the fact that they can refuel so quickly the airspace you know the 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 time that they can spend in the air with their aircraft carriers right the the aircraft carriers that they have the quality the technology right mm. um and the amount of military spending that they have on that stuff is just through the roof it's just incomparable yeah, yeah, and sure. i think for china it's kind of like you can't even deal with hong kong like you can't deal with local territorial issues you can't control hong kong what are you going to do about yeah you know yeah. other territories that that have their eyes on so i think look 
I think we, we don't want to get too caught up. We did we did get a little bit too excited in that analysis there. But, <laughs> but you know, the fact it's very interesting. Like, it, it is very interesting because you have this perception in your mind when you think of, you know, as China as an economic powerhouse. And, yeah, we can have this conversation as China as a potential challenge to U.S. supremacy. But for the last 4,000 years, China has not even tried to export its culture. Mm. I think this is another, for me, it's another sticking point. Like, in obviously, we're not economists, right? We may look like economists, but we're not. Um, <laughs> but um, everyone is like, buddy, you don't even look like an economist. Can we get that lame thing, please? No. There we go. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Perfect. Fine. Um, you know, China's never sought to export her culture around to the world. I was saying this is for me, in the little research that I've done leading up to this um, a podcast, um, uh, I think for me a sticking point is this, that China, right, it's missing something. Even if it wanted to project its power on a global like scale, mm. it's missing something. And that is that it doesn't have a set of ideas. It doesn't have that mantra of liberation and freedom yeah, yeah. or its equivalent or its counterpart. It's not trying sort. to spread its communism. It's not trying to spread its communism. Like you don't get Chinese communism. And, 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 you know, someone might come around and say, but they're hiding and biding until they, but the fact is until we see it, like with the BRI as well, like I said, we could have seen some political maneuvering for them to assert themselves globally. They could yeah. have undermined the US. They could have undermined, um, um, you know, international institutions and they could have question the world order they could have said communism is the ideology just like america says you know yeah. we've, we've got to give democracy to the world anything happened in any corner of the world america stands up and says democracy is the way forward and right china doesn't do that it doesn't seek to export its uh, and the lesson here is that economic strength and material wealth alone are not enough mm. to be considered a formidable player but on a, the world okay so that might be how it is now but is that how it's going to stay like what can we say about that like in 40 years as you mentioned right it went from poverty-stricken to a, a significant player. What about the next 40 years? What if it can take on America in the next 40 years? What if it does want to project its ideology in 40 I, years? I think yeah, you have various a variety of sort of voices weighing in on that on that question. That might even be um, something maybe we can have a look at the results we've gotten in the poll and see if we can project those. But... Um, Look, it remains to be seen. No one's going to say with some with great confidence that you know uh, China would never be a superpower, yeah. right? But I think the the sticking point is that for it to be a superpower, it starts to take. It needs to start to take you know a, a bit of a a move in the direction of ideas yeah, of yeah. an ideology, a culture, a value system, whatever you want to call it. It needs a world view for the world to get behind it. Something right? that it can it can export other than products. Exactly, right? And 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 whether China has global ambitions or not until then to me is frankly irrelevant because mm. one it doesn't have that orientation and two it doesn't have the capacity. Right? It's just too bogged down in its own domestic and and regional problems to be able to project that power, you know, on a global scale. Um, but it could happen. It could happen. <laughs> it could happen. It could happen. Like we can say, you know, some many decades ago, people wouldn't have projected America as a global power. Yeah, yeah. Right? Prior to world wars and so forth, they wouldn't have said America is going to be the power. Hundred percent. Right. Mm, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, all these major political events, um, they don't occur overnight. So who knows what the future holds? But yeah, I, I see true. where you're coming from in the yeah. sense that. The critical question is, okay, here and now today, yeah. what's the reality? Look, look, it's just, it's just a question. You know, you might say they could be a superpower in three decades. They, to be honest, by some estimates, by some estimates in, uh, 
in uh, in three decades from now, if they were to assert themselves and build their military capacity, they might it might take three or four decades to be able mm. to actually match what America's got. Oh, okay. And and, and in <laughs> that match. time, yeah, and just match. Yeah, yeah. You know, see, those are some estimates. Um, um, but but you know, what is China? Is it this? Is it this dot in a long line of dots that we've sort of feared? Where at some point, Soviet Union was the big fear. Yeah, you know, yeah. Japan was the fear. In the in the nineties, at some point, Germany right arose again, and it was a bit of a fear. Are they trying to assert themselves again? Um, and of course, with the fall fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution yep, of the Warsaw yep. Pact, we got we got we got America sort of just dominating that region. So now, yes, the question is there: Is China just another one in that sort of long line of potential fears, or is there something more to it? I think I think for the foreseeable future. Um, um, it's it's not something that challenges U.S. supremacy in any significant form, and if it was to, good luck to China <laughs> because it will be yeah. wiped clean off the floor. Yeah, um, but um, I guess like not to belabor the point, um, but as you said, right, all nations are subject to various and changing realities. Yep. If something happens tomorrow or five years from now, ten years from now, that really hampers and you know really uh, weakens the United States could be something that could change things, right? And we can't sort of predict or read into those. Um, Like the GFC definitely knocked America partly off its perch. And in fact, others will argue that prior to that, even with the war on terror and so forth, America was already already dwindling on the edge of its Mm -hmm. perch. Um, So America's definitely weakened. Like to have European leaders come out and say that Europe needs an army to challenge the United States. We can't look at them anymore with Trump coming in, with Black Lives Matter issues happening, with Corona ravaging uh, America. With all of these things, America definitely doesn't possess the power that it once had. Um, And so, you know, if China's going up, America's going down, then who knows? But yeah, I see what you're saying that we're not talking about that now, um, but we'll see what the future holds. But yeah, at this stage, I I can agree with the assessment um, that China ain't going to yep. wipe the US at the moment. So we'll leave it there. Um, that's that's our little sort of take. We wanted to sort of have a little conversation about China on the world stage, China and attentions on a local scale. And um, we hope that you found the conversation interesting. Um, we, we we are having a think about what we might want to have a conversation about in, in our next podcast. Um, Inshallah, fortnight from now. Fortnight from now. Um, so a couple of Mondays from now. At 7 p.m. Inshallah, and yep. um, if you have any any suggestions on on what we might uh, be able to have a chat about, please feel free to um, chime in. Yeah, on, absolutely. On, on like Facebook, on Instagram, jump in Facebook. Any feedback you might have for us with this as well, feel mm. free to drop it. We're more than happy to read, respond, consider all your commentary. Yep. Um, and yeah, like just stay engaged, right? We're going to be on those social media pages, um, you know, in this two week. Uh, period until our next podcast anyway so we want to continue the conversation cool 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 cool, cool. all right so we'll leave Try it there no, i mean hamza and sufyan in the evening <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there um ladies and gentlemen thank you for joining us and we'll catch you in a fortnight from now inshallah assalamualaikum assalamualaikum